A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 163 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, second airborne division of podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, as well as Stitcher, and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Herleman. And with me like a special detachment assigned to the Dark Lord Vader himself, the EU guru, the count of two continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Hey, everybody. Now, when you talk about detachments from Vader, are we talking stormtroopers or are we talking body parts? Because it seems like there's a lot he could detach along the way. Though, that would probably bring us into really, really horrible slash fiction territory. Well, does that make Vader Palpatine's Sith Army knife? Yeah, sadly, that was better than mine anyway, so you win. You win, good sir. (laughs) Oh, on the internet. (laughs) And this is, by the way, also a quick chance for a quick reminder, folks. Don't forget, if you want to win... The original two-disc widescreen DVD releases of all three prequel films from their original releases in 2001, 2002, and 2005, plus that bonus, The Story of Star Wars DVD, that was released as a pack-in bonus feature for those buying Revenge of the Sith in 2005 at Walmart stores. You can still enter to win that all the way up until March 15th, the Ides of March, by emailing us at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com putting DVD giveaway in the subject line, and putting your mailing address, in case you win, inside the body of the email. Good luck. Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we discuss Dark Horse Comics Star Wars Volume 2, Five Days of Sith by Brian Wood. Now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you our quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's arrogance. Yes, Five Days of Sith, um... As always, I think one of the good places to start with this is context. I think context makes everything clearer, and we like to look at things from the perspective of how they should be looked at as opposed to looking at things in a vacuum. So one thing to keep in mind here is the way that these were all collected. If you are following along with us, you may be saying, wait a second, why did you jump to this? You've covered 1 through 6, which was in the shadow of Yavin. And then 7 to 12, which is from the ruins of Alderaan. Now, I've got volume 3... Rebel Girl. Why didn't you jump to Rebel Girl? Why are you jumping ahead to Volume 4 and doing Five Days of Sith? We're actually not jumping ahead. If you got these as they were originally coming out, they are not in the same order as the way they were collected. They had six issues 
in the first two trade paperbacks, and they were six-issue story arcs, easy to deal with. Once you get to issue 13 all the way up through issue 20, though, you've got eight issues, but you've got two two-issue story arcs and one four-issue story arc in the middle between them. And when they decided to put these together as a trade paperback, instead of splitting that second story arc down the middle, what they did was they basically grabbed the middle one, those four issues, Rebel Girl, made them into trade paperback number three, and then took the two before it, 13 and 14, these, Five Days of Sith, and then the last two, A Shattered Hope, 19 and 20, and combined those together into a trade paperback called A Shattered Hope that they called Volume 4. And honestly, this stuff is all pretty much happening presumably at the same time as what we get in Rebel Girl anyway, because Rebel Girl picks up basically where issue 12 left off just from the Rebel point of view. So the reading order isn't that big a deal, but it is a different publication order if you're trying to follow along with this. You know, that's one thing that moving into a Marvel era that I really worry about. You know, I, I always say I'm a big Spider-Man collector, but I'm following Venom and Guardians of the Galaxy. And right now it went from like number 23 where we found out Venom got this really kick butt suit. And at the end of it, Peter Quill was was elected president. And then you go into 24 and suddenly this whole Black Vortex crossover event is is two issues deep. And you're like, wait, what the heck happened? So I, I went out, I found the Vortex number one. And it, too, doesn't line up with 23. I'm like, what in the hell? Like, where is my story at? That's something that I'm really worried about going from being someone that collects these in singles to trades. Because I do have these as the singles. And going with the new Marvel version of Star Wars, I'm definitely switching to trades. But I think about that. Marvel seems to be the biggest offender when it comes to collecting their trade paperbacks in really weird random patterns. (laughs) And I'm thinking about, you know, this new Star Wars and how you've got... Darth Vader number one kind of ties in with Star Wars number two in itself. How are they going to end up collecting stuff? I would assume they're just going to collect them by series as opposed to doing the weird stuff like they did with some of the Clone Wars trade paperbacks for Dark Horse. But, I mean, that's the the idea of bouncing around time-wise and the, the mystery of how things fit together. I mean, that's not even just a Marvel thing. DC did that when they relaunched the New 52. And, I mean, that was a whole level of confusion. Like, here's all these Batman titles. Here's all these Superman titles. Some of them are from this era. Some are from five years before. Some of them are from this. Some are from that. Because they were trying to give a lot of backstory very quickly in these multiple series, but never really gave a lot of clarity, at least not within the first you know, half a year when I was reading almost all of those 52 titles, uh, which was nuts, by the way. They never really seemed to give a lot of clarity to that. Another thing, though, is uh, the digital version of Darth Vader number one, when it comes up, it it looked like it was actually part of the other Star Wars series, and it was called Book One, which I thought, ooh, maybe that's how they're going to do it. Everything they're putting out, kind of like how how Marvel's doing the uh, phases, you know, maybe this is their phase one of Star Wars in a Book One format. Interesting. I don't know. What are you using to pull it up? Uh, That was with the uh, code you gave me. No, I mean, what what program or whatever are you oh, using? Oh, Comixology. I was using the Marvel app uh, going huh. in through that. Because it doesn't look like that in the standard Comixology app for me. When I open it up and I look at the different selection of comic series to click on, Darth Vader is a separate thing from Star Wars. Interesting. Yeah, I'll have to screenshot what I got and put it hmm. on the podcast. Well, speaking of which, that's a good segue into something I wanted to mention. Uh, one of our listeners wrote in trying to figure out what exactly it was that I was talking about a while back when we did our formats discussion. Uh, When I said that the Comixology app had changed when I think it was Amazon bought it, 
where you can't buy comics through the app anymore. You have to go through the website to buy them, at, like, and you can subscribe to them and have them automatically delivered and that sort of thing, but you can't buy them out of the app anymore like they used to. Turns out, and I hadn't tried this, I assumed it was on all platforms, turns out that is only a screw you Apple type of thing. On the iOS devices, oh. you can't buy directly from the app anymore because Apple would get a cut and Amazon doesn't want that apparently. On the Android version of the Comixology app, which includes the Marvel app, the DC app, there are different spin-off ones that are essentially the same thing but narrowed down to one company, uh, you can still buy through the app itself. So in that sense, the Android version, while not as smooth to use, is a little more versatile in terms of being able to buy things. It is only Apple users who are stuck going through the website. Though, honestly, with their one-click buy option you can set up on the website, just jumping over to Safari, opening it, doing a one-click buy, and jumping right back to the app to be able to, to download the thing, honestly makes it fairly convenient still anyway. But it's interesting that that apparently was a jab at Apple, not a change to the app on all platforms, which I didn't realize at the time. No doubt. Now, another thing we can use for context here as we get into Five Days of Sith is a little bit about Brian Wood's Star Wars. We have talked plenty when we did our coverage of In the Shadow of Yavin and From the Ruins of Alderaan about how this was a series that feels like it was meant to start a new continuity or something because it tells a story that could be decent, depending on your point of view and your opinion of it, could be decent if viewed in a vacuum or if viewed as the beginning of a new continuity. But, as you are reading, there are so many instances where it seems to rub previous Legends continuity the wrong way that it feels shoehorned in and as if the people behind the scenes didn't give a crap about making it fit. Like they were saying, oh, we're probably going to lose the license to Marvel anyway. F it. We're just going to do whatever the heck we want. Hey, Brian Wood, ditch continuity. It's restraining. Just do whatever you want. And then turned around and let it be Leland Chi to try to find a way to fit this in. Part of that, I think, and the frustration from it for fans is the fact that by the time we got to that point where this series was ending and we might have been able to get some clarity, it was around the same time that Clone Wars was ending and we were hoping for clarity. And the official line was that Leland Chi could no longer answer direct fan questions about continuity issues unless it went through basically the public relations department. It couldn't be simply an email or forum discussion or Facebook discussion on those topics really anymore. And that meant that this series never got any form of clarity to say, wait a second, it's supposed to be two months after the Battle of Yavin. Why have they already left Yavin when they're supposed to do that six months out? Why is the executor already in action when it's supposed to still be being worked on, as we saw in classic Star Wars, because it jumps into play and its first real mission is to stop the Rebels as they're trying to leave Yavin. What's going on? Wait a second. Why does Vader now know the name Luke Skywalker? First Skywalker, now Luke Skywalker, supposedly learning it from Beerusia. How is that supposed to fit with the old Marvel series and the Dark Horse series, Vader's Quest? And so on and so on. Uh, where does the name Rogue Squadron come from? All of a sudden, we have a new backstory for that. It just felt like a lot of, of bumps along the road of a series that never really got a fair shot because of being told, apparently, it seems, screw continuity. Do whatever you want. And it turns out that we may have at least a little bit of an explanation for this now. Rob Mullet, 
who does the Star Wars Expanded Universe Chronology. It's another Star Wars timeline out there. I used to host it actually beside my Star Wars Timeline Gold over at uh, StarWarsFanWars.com slash timeline. Uh, his, he's actually in the process now of creating like a blog version of it that looks pretty cool. He's uh, I'm just another of these guys that does a lot of chronology work, but he tends to focus in on using the context clues of the stories to alter placements when it makes sense and screw what Lucasfilm says the official placement is. So it's, it's a different approach. In any event, uh, he apparently got a chance to ask a question of Brian Wood. And the answer to the question, I forget the exact wording of the question itself, the answer basically was, when it came to continuity, that he was told that he did not have to adhere to the old Marvel series. He did not have to adhere to the old newspaper strips. And you wonder if in the phrasing of that answer, pinpointing those two things, if that just meant don't pay attention to the continuity, continuity of that era, or if it meant literally those sources, because that is an era shortly after A New Hope in which there's very few stories that have set time frames. Um, you've got stuff that's relatively new, like Rebel Force, for instance. But for the most part, in the era between A New Hope and The Empire Strikes Back, most of the stories in there tend to be older stories. There's tons of them. You know, we always say that they probably never had a chance to go to the bathroom at any given point in that time period because they were so, so busy. Mm -hmm. But most of them were those old sources. And it brings up kind of a conundrum. Because the Rebels leaving Yavin, that was shown in the comic strips. The Executor being involved right as they're leaving in its first mission, that was the comic strips. Uh, the Marvel series, that's where we first find him learning Luke's name, although it was later shown in Vader's Quest and so forth. And it's that, here's what it was before, and then later such and such, which is the issue. Because even if he is to ignore those sources, later continuity was built around those sources. Like, the comic strips didn't say it's six months after Yavin when they leave. That was later added into the continuity and made into an official declaration in which other stories were built around, but was referencing back to that escape. Same thing with the executor going active six months after and so forth. And... Uh, two months after having it be when Vader learned the name, which was then used as the basis for Vader's quest. Ignoring those sources is one thing. The problem is that those sources spun off into other things that formed sort of a backbone of that era of the continuity. So, apparently, what we're seeing here, the reason why it seems to constantly butt up against continuity, is that Brian Wood was told basically he could ignore the sources that provided the framework of that era, even though the framework itself was a later Legends thing built around those sources instead of coming from the sources themselves. It somewhat makes sense. It doesn't sound, though, that he was being told to make a new continuity so much as it was, don't be stuck adhering to these stories from the 70s and 80s. Tell your own, with nobody bothering to say, but by the way, those stories from the 70s and 80s already have stuff built on them. Don't trash that newer stuff. Really bizarre situation going into this. Yeah, that's definitely the, the word of the day was bizarre. You had the feeling like this was the soft boot. You know, it was like getting fans ready to chew and ponder new directions of old things. Uh, you know, it was a fun little throwaway story, this one. And, and even the series itself. 
but this story, especially though, it, it, you know, it seemed like it was a vital link for Darth Vader in his quest for the rebel pilot who shot down the Death Star. But as, as you point out, it, it was it was definitely that thing for most of us EU fans that have been around long enough that that there was that chip on the shoulder w- that came with this series of the whys. You know, there there was always that angle of. Well, why would you need to make up something new when you had this right there? And why would you have to, you know, pull the executor off and, and make it doing its thing? And if I take that all away and I stop looking at that kind of stuff and how it was doing new things for it, it was an all right story. I mean, the art is great, though. Vader seems to be the one character who isn't, you know, staying the same all the way through it. Uh, you know, we see Vader. He's he's a madman on a driven mission. Uh, you know, there's, there's an, uh, one of the nice things I thought was interesting was that this is another one of those, uh, issues that illustrate that Vader is again being blamed for the Death Star. Uh, you know, the current Marvel new Darth Vader number two, they're, they're paralleling that, which keeps in line with, you know, what Lucas always said about the EU in the first place, it being a parallel universe. So, you know, I, I can kind of accept that more now. Uh, but there were some really interesting, cool things that popped up in this too, that, that were kind of new and unique. At least it felt like that. The Milnet. Uh, it was used in an interesting way. Uh, it I don't know. It was, it was like a military hollow net. And so I, I just, I don't know. I, I don't know if we'd ever mentioned the military using a mill net before. I mean, we've heard of like secure channels on their comm links and things like that, but a mill net was not something that readily jumped to my mind. And the, and the way it was used in the story, I thought was an interesting twist. Um, so there was a lot of cool things like that for the way it stood on its own. I thought this was a kind of a fun little ride. Uh, it, it was Kind of interesting because, was it, Syrah Bria or, or Bria Syrah had just kind of gone through something similar with, with being a, a female officer in the presence of Darth Vader working with Vader and what that was like. So in some ways it felt like it was a repeat of some angles that we'd already seen. But again, it, it worked because they also referenced her in that. So I don't know. I, I like the internal viewpoint of Vader from an Imperial standpoint. I mean, you know, you, you had an ensign in there who's about to jump three whole ranks. Uh, so there's that angle as well about, about the chasing promotions and stuff like that of willing to risk it all to just get a little farther ahead. I mean, she, I believe she mentioned something along the lines of she was going to jump three years ahead of all her peers and stuff like that. And, I don't know. There were other books that I've been reading recently that, that have been teasing that. Even John Jackson Miller with the New Dawn and the New Canon uh, universe said similar with characters like Sloan. You know, and, and what was interesting in that case was the female character in that recognized, you know, that she was kind of being played in that regard. Whereas this, Vader has the clout to make it happen. So it was an interesting, you know, aspect there because, you know, the, the main character that he brings in is an ensign at this point. But by the time it's over, she's like a lieutenant commander. So I don't know, there are a lot of really cool angles at play here, and if I take away the fact that this is, as you put it, you know, just trampling all over a lot of existing continuity, I can enjoy it as a fun little throwaway story. Uh, when I look at the fact that that it does have that bigger continuity and that littler stuff, it does make sense. Brian would be told to throw away that other stuff, but it does it does make you stop and scratch your head and, and wonder why the bigger things that that continuity or the official continuity and i'm using those air quotes that i'm sure they used every time they said it when that was established i mean you would think the official continuity would have been the one continuity you wouldn't want to trash that bad i think for me the biggest thing that i was always more irked with was was the rogue squadron stuff i mean i don't know maybe that's part of being an eu fan but rogue squadron is sacred you know this was a story that i would say Actually, out of all the stories we got in Brian Wood's Star Wars, it is probably the best one we got. 
And part of that is because it's different. You know, it's not treading the same ground of, oh, look, it's Han and Luke and Leia in the era after A New Hope doing yet another mission that nobody's really going to care about that has very little impact on anything and really isn't going to be referenced in anything else. Woohoo! Right? Because that's kind <laughs> of what tends to happen with stories in that era. Instead, this one follows a new character who doesn't get a ton of depth, but gets a little, and gives us another perspective on Vader, kind of in the way that certain issues back in the Empire comic series did. I like that sort of thing. Also, because it's focused on this new character and new situation, it doesn't run into continuity issues as much as the other issues of this series has. It's relatively continuity inoffensive for its time. So it's not causing me to constantly go, wait, what? No, come on. You know, didn't somebody <laughs> catch that? Why would you want to change that? Why couldn't you make it four months later? Who gives a crap? Why shouldn't that have been an easy fix to make to make sure it's not going to have to get shoehorned in, et cetera, et cetera? All that kind of stuff that drives me nuts about the rest of this series out the window because this one doesn't tend to butt up against much. Would have been nice if Carlos de Ando was back doing the artwork and said we have Facundo per, uh, Percio, I guess is his name, uh, whose work is good, but not nearly as cool as DeAnda's artwork is for this series. I do think that there are some elements of this that are going to wind up being controversial or were controversial, presumably, at the time. I saw some talk of it, not a lot, but I try to stay away from message boards a lot of times now. I tend to stick to Facebook and such. Um, they tend to take the Beresia angle of the story and just completely write it off in these two mm -hmm. issues. Mm -hmm. And it's just gone. Kind of like they wrote off the whole, there's a spy leaking information within the Rebel Alliance, and oh look, Bircher is a rebel. I guess that whole spy thing and everything related to it is just gone now. We don't need to keep looking for it, because I guess they're assuming Bircher was supposed to be the spy, but not really. It doesn't make sense with a lot of the stuff they were saying about the electronic communications and whatnot. Well, uh, would that make Mon Mothma the spy? <laughs> I guess. I guess she was supposed to be leaking it to him. They also take an unusual approach here. I mean, there's the, for lack of a better term, the what? element in earlier issues where Prithy was able to hear Obi-Wan's voice through the Force somehow. And now, in the, the story group canon, we are having to use has Luke heard Ben's voice, has he encountered Vader and stuff like that, as a means of figuring out which comes first, Heir to the Jedi or Star Wars and Darth Vader from Marvel Comics. So we tend to be very focused lately, it seems, on, wait, who's hearing Ben's voice and whatnot? And in this two-issue story arc, we have Vader communicating with Obi-Wan and doing so in a way that I'm not sure befits the Obi-Wan character. Uh, that, at the time, drew some, some eyebrows raising. I would say the mm -hmm. same thing on this read-through for me. And then the Beresia thing being written off as kind of the, what? I do applaud them from making use of sort of two angles on diversity at once. A lot of times we don't have strong female characters, especially within the Empire because of the whole thing built, the myth around Dala that was built of they are so sexist thanks to the RPG that Dala was special because she was a woman, so we can't have you know, female Imperials running around very often except in super high positions of authority like Icehard. And here we have a lower-level woman who is also black. Again, we don't tend to see, and it seems like the diversity is being more played up now, uh, the, one of the main characters of Heir to the Jedi is a black woman. You don't see black characters 
very much in Star Wars outside of a few main characters, at least within the first 30 or so years of its existence. And now we're starting to see that more. And in this case, we have a black woman, which is a minority within a minority, as some would say. Um, I find that interesting. And yes, I'm saying black. I'm not saying African-American because this is a Star Wars galaxy that is space. That would be like being that idiot on the news whenever they had things going on with the uh, the attack in France a while back saying, and he was an African-American Frenchman. Yeah, no, no such thing. Unless you have dual citizenship and you're American and French at the same time, African-American Frenchman makes no sense. And they don't say African Frenchman. It's just black. Um, So we have Ensign Nanda. Not sure if that's her first name or last name. Presumably it's her last name. We never get a first name. It may be a first name, but why would you say Ensign first name? Maybe she's someone who just has one name, like Madonna. Uh, But (laughs) Ensign Nanda is an interesting new twist on an Imperial character and the way this story ends, there's so many ways it could have gone. It very easily could have gone with her going off and joining the Rebel Alliance or dying, which tends to be what happens most of the time when someone witnesses Vader firsthand. They either get disgusted with the Empire and leave, or they wind up having to be killed so they can't share information, like Lorita Tom back in Dark Vader in the Ghost Prison. Instead, mm-hmm. we have a character who has a much more realistic psychological effect coming from her experiences with Vader over these five days, maybe not of the Sith or of Sith, but with the Sith, which is probably a more appropriate term. So I liked it. It's sort of the shining positive point within Brian Wood's run of Star Wars, but again, kind of like being valedictorian at summer school. The best of a series that by itself tended to constantly rub me the wrong way. Beer angle was was definitely the the part of the story that felt left behind. I I will say overall, I think the best way for me to describe this as a horrific look into the service of the Dark Lord. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate in our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Now, consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentience of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. So this issue picks up where basically the last issue left off, at least for the Imperial side of things. Darth Vader wants answers about this devastating betrayal of Colonel Bircher turning out to be a rebel spy within the Imperial ranks, uh, aboard the Devastator, no less, his former flagship before he transferred over to the Executor and handed it over to Bircher on orders from the Emperor and so forth. So he's looking for answers. Vader is looking for answers. And he has assembled a team for an off-the-books mission. He has a group of elite stormtroopers. He never gives that unit a name. They're recognizable by these black dots, kind of like a bindi uh, in South Asian culture, on their helmets, uh, around the forehead spot on their helmets. So maybe we could call them the black zeros or the black dots or whatever. Um, they, but they are the elite of the elite, the super special forces, SEAL Team 6 type of guys. You know, if they're the 501st, they're the ones that are so hardcore 501st that they only wear 501 jeans when they're off duty. I mean, extreme 501st. With them is somewhat of an odd choice, perhaps, as the officer who will be a pilot for them which is this woman named Ensign Nanda. Again, a black woman, which is a nice choice on Brian Wood's part here from a diversity standpoint in Star Wars. And she is someone who, because of her rank, 
and I'm assuming this is why Vader would have chosen her, because of her yeah. rank, somewhat easy to control and easy to sort of bribe in a sense, because Vader is promising that if she carries out this off-the-books mission and they all survive and come back, because basically if they don't succeed, they don't return, which pretty much means they didn't survive, uh, that she would wind up not only getting a decent amount of money and a bigger set of quarters and that sort of thing, but she's going to wind up getting a promotion to lieutenant commander, from ensign to lieutenant commander, from Wesley Crusher to Data. Okay? A huge jump of three different grades and basically five years' worth of time that she would have spent to try to move between those grades. And Vader's going to be the one to make it happen, as Mark mentioned in the uh, spoiler-free part of the discussion here. Their goal is to seek out information on Bercher, and their lead essentially is to find the people, the slicers, who would have been capable of getting into the Imperial Milnet, the military computer network, to somehow put in all these false records, uh, awards and commendations that he got, uh, academy records, all this stuff that made Bircher appear to be not just an Imperial officer, but an exceptional Imperial officer who would have been worthy of being assigned to command the Devastator. So initially, the idea is they're going to take an Imperial shuttle and go out and look for these spies and use that to hopefully track down where Bircher really came from, who he really was. But this is all stuff that is off the books and technically against the Emperor's orders. The Emperor is not giving approval for this, and Vader is basically trying to make sure that the Emperor doesn't really know what's going on until he comes back successfully in the end. Sort of a, you know, don't ask permission because it's easier to ask forgiveness in the end. Although in this era, it certainly seems as though the Emperor, you know, they'll line, the Emperor is not as forgiving as I am. Well, it seems like the Emperor forgives Vader just about everything every time in this era, minus one or two stories where he actually gets punished for screwing up. So Vader's mission is essentially a saving face mission. He screwed up with the Death Star. He didn't catch Bircher. Everyone was essentially duped by this rebel spy. He can't make the Death Star right, but he could certainly make this right, and he's going to in his mind. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting twist that we have a Vader redemption story where you see him being redeemed in the lights of the evil empire. I mean, typically the redemption story is him overthrowing the empire. Uh, there, in fact, there's a line where he, he mentions it. The mission is one of vengeance and redemption, of finding those responsible for treason against the empire and holding them to account. It is a mission where all wrongs will be righted at all costs. And of course, Nada, she's like, he means his honor. The rumors, a persistent one. The emperor blames him for the loss of the Death Star. And yeah, I mean, that that's definitely one of those themes about this that I, I really was kind of getting a kick out of. And I like the fact that he chose an ensign, you know, and, and, and the three uh, levels in rank is going to advance her five whole years along. I mean, for her, it's definitely a gamble. I mean, she talks about the fact that, you know, most people of her rank would never be around Lord Vader, never even see him. Uh, I mean, just to be able to see the, the, the dossier or dossier or whatever you call it of, of the troopers, she had to get, you know, levels of clearance that she would have never been able to earn right away. So there's all these angles where she's way out in the deep end treading water here. So you got that angle at play as well. And yet Vader's opening up to her 
about all this, which I, I think it really builds to the fear that the character is going to have towards the next issue is because of the, I mean, the way it plays out as the group starts whittling down and stuff. I mean, she becomes a liability with everything he's told her right now. And I, I like the way that that plays into itself as we move along. Yeah, she's an interesting choice. Like I said, logically, I'm not sure that it's an, an immediately apparent thing, because I think that most would say, wait a second, why is he using elite stormtroopers and this relatively inexperienced pilot? Wouldn't he want the best of the best? But from the standpoint of someone he can manipulate and someone who, you know, could be easily bumped out of the way if she has to be in the end, not only does it give us a character that in that light makes sense for Vader, but yeah, you've got a fear. This is a brand new character. Will she die like so many others who have seen Vader at his worst and at his weakest in some cases? Uh, is she going to get bumped off at the end, or can she come back? And you know, the stereotypical ending would be that, yes, she either dies or she survives and becomes a rebel, and we don't get that. One wonders where her story would have gone if she ever came back, if this series had continued. But instead here, she's essentially a one-off character, or a two-off character, in terms of issues, but gives us someone who, for once, is central to a story in this era where we don't know what their fate is going to be. It's not the safe Luke, Leia, Han, Vader, Lando, etc., etc. All of a sudden, it's, whoa, what's going to happen to her? The stakes are higher. So they go to Coruscant, and the first thing they do is they go to the place where the Milnet security breach likely happened and start interrogating people, basically trying to figure out how that was possible. You know, Vader says, you know, I've traveled too far to be lied to, Major. So let me ask again. A false history going back decades, including university records, cadet evaluations, service records, a medical history, and several imperial citations of valor, post-dated and sliced into your data cores. Impossible? Surely. And basically gets the information that he wants about who could have sliced it, but just keeps on torturing people to make an example of them for others. And it's the, really Nanda's first instance of, oh crap, what have I got myself into? Uh, we see her in the hallway, a nice panel with no dialogue, where she's leaning against a wall, kind of holding herself up with her hand across her mouth, where it's like she's fighting back revulsion and possibly getting ready to throw up at what she has seen and what she's witnessed here. Um, giving her that sort of human trait and giving us a sense of where this is going, that this is someone who's seeing the darker side of the Empire, very much like many Imperial cadets that we see at different points in the Legends continuity, where they see the Empire at its worst, and their revulsion causes them to eventually flip sides. It's her internal monologue, too, that really sets the levels that Vader's willing to go here. You know, she goes, we were on site at the data center for nearly eight hours. We had the information we needed within the first 15 minutes. The rest of the time was spent making examples and raising standards of conduct. They do get a better ship at this point. They had a Lambda-class shuttle. That wasn't really going to be the best thing for the job. They switch over to an Assassin-class Corvette, a CR-90 Corvette. And they even say in here, a CR-90 Corvette uh, with a single warhead launcher. It is a variant called the Assassin-class. So, yes, again, Brian Wood is going to all the detail of telling us the type of ship and making sure he's saying, see, I know my Star Wars, when he's been ignoring other aspects of the continuity, apparently on purpose. I'll give him props here, though. I mean, it was a cool-looking ship. They determined that it was Bothans. Of course, if they're spies and doing a bunch of slicing, of course they're Bothans. And head for Bothawai as the site for potential spies that could have been the ones to slice these records. They show up, order the defenses down, 
send in operations to go after the different targets who are these potential slicers and basically take them out you know all at once and just just very quickly wipe out these people it's an interesting approach it wasn't bombarding from orbit it wasn't vader going in and cutting a swath through these people it was basically a commando raid you know send in a small team here small team here wipe out these people and that's it. It says six troopers, two teams of three, boots on the ground, simultaneous operations. And they're just eliminated. Again, sort of not even bothering to capture and question about the records and how they were sliced in, just basically tying up loose ends essentially here. Well, another thing about Nada that's really cool is, you know, she's got her own darkness. I mean, you know, there's the aspect of they talk about 16 hours until we start killing Bothans. Hey. I had friends on the Death Star, same as anyone, so I was fine with it. Interesting twist. She takes a moment to actually try to talk with the stormtroopers, but they basically tell her to go back to the cockpit, and she's trying to get inside the heads of the troopers, thinking about what they're going through with all this. She says, I'm from Naboo. I did my mandatory reservist training. I'm not much of a soldier, but I'm familiar with the emotions. The adrenaline high, always lagging behind the actual action. It kicks in midway through the mission and stays with you long after. Leaves you on edge unfulfilled getting into the head sort of the head of a warrior but then as she continues forward you get the sense of how imperial officers are kind of used to the idea that the empire is you know sort of a speak softly and carry a big stick just without the speak softly it's just the big stick slamming enemies uh, not doing the whole idea of a proportional response in modern political parlance a proportional response is something like if the enemy say, blows up a plane full of military personnel, then you blow up one of their military bases. Uh, if they blow up a train, you attack one of their supply convoys or something. It's a proportional response. It's not, you know, they blow up one of your ships, you nuke their entire country. The <laughs> Empire has no such proportionality to its response. She says, all I did was hit a button. These men conducted home invasions, up-close murder, probably arson to clean up, collective punishment, the wrath of the Empire, sudden, unexpected, and fully out of all proportion. And it doesn't necessarily seem as though she is being critical in saying that. It's just the reality of what the Empire is. I think that's one of the best, it's one of the more succinct, well-put ways that I think I've ever seen of essentially putting the Tarkin Doctrine to work. And she it's even referenced in here as the Tarkin Doctrine at one point. Mm -hmm. It's clearly what the Imperial officers were used to at this point. I mean, the Death Star. Yeah. One of the cool angles, though, I like about the Special Detachment troopers themselves, when one of the troopers takes off his helmet, he's got like a ski mask on underneath, which, I, I don't know, from a cosplay angle, I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, but the other side was the, the ranking or, or the markings that they have to kind of signify that they're a special detachment. They got a black dot in the center of their helmet, and then they've got one right over the heart on their uh, chest plate. Now, the thing that really leaps out about this is when you watch the Episode 7, The Force Awakens trailer, and John pops up in his Stormtrooper costume and turns and walks away, he has a similar black dot on his back. And I was wondering, you know, was that being used in the film as something along this lines to signify that it's an elite soldier or an elite detachment of the stormtroopers. Cause I don't know. It was just a really interesting and odd thing that they had it on these 
troopers to signify who they are. But these troopers all the way around seemed a little odd because later on with the Milnet and stuff, when they start receiving other orders and stuff, they kind of do their own thing, which I don't know. I like the fact that she mentions that they were doing all the up close and stuff. I mean, they, you got the vibe that while they were used to the same rank and file evilness of the Empire, these guys are willing to go above and beyond. The next scene had me actually kind of laughing. I think it's meant to be an ooh moment, but I was kind of cracking up. Vader finally reports in to the Emperor. And the Emperor's like, where have you been? What are you doing? You know, your actions can't be for me. You're blazing quite a path out there. What are you doing? Uh, Vader says, you know, I seek retribution in whatever form it may take and however I feel it is satisfactory. And what of my satisfaction? I assure you, my lord. And blah, blah, blah. He keeps talking until he finally says, you know, you told me once... We would rule the galaxy together. I seek only to be worthy. Allow me that. And it's interesting that he's sort of referencing back to the original Sith deal and uh, sort of asking permission. He's taking this upon himself and yet trying to give a rationale for why he's doing it, still sort of in service to the Emperor. But then he's still being rebellious in the process. The Emperor then tries to say, I. And Vader just goes, Vader out. Vader hung up on the Emperor. And again, he's gonna get forgiven for it, but I find it interesting that this is basically Vader saying, oh yeah, I'm sorry, gotta go, bye, click. <laughs> I don't know why, but I heard it in Seacrest. <laughs> Vader out. Their next stop is Kuat Drive Yards, where the Devastator is being repaired from what we saw back in From the Ruins of Alderaan. And Vader's not there to reclaim the ship. The ship in his eyes is tainted because of the rebel spy who commanded it. So he's now going to be basically based out of the Executor, which is an interesting way of giving a reason for that change, aside from just, well, Vader wanted the bigger, better, badass ship. He questions the loyalty of all of the Imperial officers who were in command of the ship, amongst the thousands of people who are on the ship in general. And this, to me, was probably the coolest scene of this issue. You have one who dares to say that we were all deceived, even your lordship. And you can t and Nanda sees it coming. You know, Birch's deception was complete. We were all deceived. And her narration out to the side says, don't say it, even <laughs> your lordship. Vader uses the force not to choke him, but to slam his face so hard into the table that all we see is a wham and a lot of blood. Killing the person for daring to speak out. You have another person who stands up and really gives a huge, almost like a speech, in defense of the people on the crew, of the 38,000 brave sons and daughters of the Empire who serve aboard the Devastator, uh, talking about how it was Vader who left the ship in command of Bercher, Vader who authorized that transfer, uh, Vader who was in command when Bercher came aboard, etc., 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 and basically calls him the Emperor's lapdog and such, and... You would expect after that time of outburst, we would see Vader do yet another force choke or something. But that's kind of pat. The way they handle this, I thought was a cool twist. And that another officer, a loyal officer, stands up, pulls his pistol, blasts that guy in the face, then immediately puts the pistol in his own mouth, says, forgive us, Lord Vader, and long live the Emperor, and kills himself. Before Vader then kills five more before he is sated in the situation. I found that to be a particularly dark twist to this story. That it's not Vader doing the killing so much as Vader and the loyalty and fear that he and the Emperor inspire would drive these officers to this 
degree of loyalty to the point where those who don't speak out, who are still towing the party line, will be willing to take their own lives as a matter of honor for failing the empire. It's something you see with the idea of soldiers and honor uh, and being willing to die for their mistakes that I think is part of, of a duty-bound code that you see in a lot of militaries around the world and throughout history. But the, that seeing that loyalty to the empire is kind of creepy because the kind of thing that you would say with like loyalty to Kim Jong-un of North Korea or loyalty to Saddam Hussein going into the first and second wars we fought with Iraq. This idea of man or, or Nazi troops being loyal to Hitler. It's this, you almost want to admire the sense of duty but you realize their sense of duty is too evil. So is it to be admired? Or is this yet another twisted version of the way that duty can become something that perpetuates evil? I, I like that scene because it just raises those types of philosophical questions for the reader, I think. Oh, absolutely. It, it, the other side of it is, you know, the guy that, that has enough kind of gives you the vibe that he was probably around during the time of the New Republic around the time of the Republic itself. I, I like the fact that, that he builds to an anger and the fact that the other guy just took a face plant for even, you know, accusing the same thing isn't enough to stop him. I mean, you know, I, I'm going to go ahead and read the whole thing because I think it really bears set up the moment. I mean, when he gets mad, he's enough Lord Vader. I must protest nearly 38,000 brave sons and daughters of the empire served aboard the devastator and you insult each and every one of them. Might I remind you, Vader, that you were their commanding officer when the spy Bircher was allowed aboard. It was you who willingly transferred command authorization over to him. And it was you who left the Devastator in his care and fled the system like a wounded pup. And the only reason any of us are here now suffering your torments is that the command staff and those 38,000 men had the courage, the courage! to disengage from the rebel fleet at the critical point and therefore live to fight another day. Where is the Emperor? We deserve recognition, not insults from his lapdog, if you're still even able to claim that status. And I like that too, that it's like, like even the, the rank and file, you know, they all know Vader's on the, the Emperor's poop list. I mean, <laughs> that across the board, everybody knows on the Empire side, Vader f***ed up. <laughs> And it certainly fits with what we see in A New Hope with where basically Vader is subordinate to Tarkin. And there are times where it seems like there's kind of a an, an animosity towards him amongst the command crew. Like Mahdi, for instance, you know, don't try to frighten us with your sorcerous ways, Lord Vader, which is always a line that I thought sounded like he was having trouble saying it. Uh, we've got that sort of animosity towards him and distrust towards him among the rank and file of the officers. Here we see that type of thing in action again. It's not that Vader is larger than life and everybody simply bows to his will. There are plenty of people who don't see him either as the threat that he is or don't see him as someone who simply deserves respect by virtue of who he is as opposed to things that he's done in his track record, which lately hasn't been all that great. While they're on their way back to their ship, to the Archer, there's a brief moment where one of the Imperial officers comes by and says that he's got information on the most recent whereabouts of Beerasia, who of course was last seen running away so that she wouldn't face Vader's wrath. He appears to be disinterested in it. We find later that Nando requested 
to go ahead and have that information sent to the ship to her. She recognized the value of it, even if that in and of itself went against what Vader was saying, at least out loud. We'll see where that pays off, kind of, in a very weak way, in the next issue. And I said weak way, not weak way. It does not pay off as, like, Hondo Onaka or anything like that. Yeah. Weak way. It- they definitely use her curiosity to drive Bria's story here. I mean, you know, when Vader says she's irrelevant, that definitely makes her curiosity peak. If the rumors were true, it was hard for me to imagine someone more deserving of Vader's anger than Bira. Tasked by Vader to ferret out rebel infiltrators, she failed and abandoned her post. So I like the fact that her curiosity as to why Vader's calling her irrelevant when, you know, clearly she should have some kind of... <laughs> wrath coming her way like it allows her to kind of you know do what the reader is doing going what ever happened to that character that moves us into a scene that i think is probably one of the more controversial ones of the issue they're aboard the archer the stormtroopers are asleep nanda is piloting sort of barely she's mostly resting in the the cockpit and vader is just kind of looking out into space into hyperspace and he is contacted by the spirit of Obi-Wan Kenobi. And it makes for an interesting scene, but it it's one that, I don't know, the shock value of it was one of the whoa moments of the issue, but I can see where there's a lot of places where you can sort of scratch your head over this and the way it plays out in the next issue. Obi-Wan's ghost, who is apparently contacting Vader for the first time in this issue, says, It will be all for naught, Darth. You will never truly satisfy your master Palpatine. Obi-Wan, I killed you. Do not be so sure. The path of the Jedi warns against thinking in absolutes. Yeah, you gotta remind us of that great hypocritical moment in Revenge of the Sith, right? Only Sith deal Mm -hmm. in absolutes. You may have cut me down, but remember what I told you. I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. That frightens you, doesn't it? I am ten times the Jedi you were, Obi-Wan. I'm sorry, you're calling yourself a Jedi? Don't you kill people for that? Your parlor tricks do not impress me. I do not come to you unbidden. Your fittings betray you, Anakin. Do not say that name. And he activates his lightsaber, starts swinging it around randomly. Skywalker is dead. Do you really think? No. There is not another? And this is where I have to sort of pause and take issue here. I like the idea to a degree of Obi-Wan taunting Anakin, or at least Obi-Wan speaking with Anakin, trying to sow confusion trying to cause Vader to question himself, and the argument that maybe things like this are what help weaken his resolve so that when the time finally comes where he has a chance to save his own son on the Death Star 2, he does so. It's kind of revisionist, basically saying that it's not just him making the decision, he is being prodded towards that direction by the spirit of Obi-Wan from time to time, but it makes sense within the broader continuity of things, and it makes sense that if Obi-Wan can speak to Anakin, or... And it makes sense that if Obi-Wan could speak to Luke and apparently be heard by Prithy, then surely he could speak to Anakin slash Vader here. The thing about it is what he's saying. The taunting, the, you know, the path of Jedi warns against absolutes, you know, yeah, it worries you that I've become more powerful because now I'm in spirit form, blah, blah, blah. All that stuff makes sense until Skywalker is dead. Do you really think there is not another? What the hell was the point? of spending 19 years keeping Luke safe and hiding him and hiding his identity and being sure to try to make sure that the Rebels, at least on the Rebel side of things, that the Rebels don't let Vader find out Luke's identity if they can help it. 
If Obi-Wan's gonna be there basically saying, by the way, you got a kid out there, bruh. <laughs> what the? I want to say the F word here. It, it, it jars me so badly when I'm reading this scene saying, what is Obi-Wan doing? That was definitely one of those head-scratching moments. The, it was like, why don't we just let Japan know we're flying in with a nuclear bomb so they could shoot us out of the sky? I, I, I never really lined up. Uh, the other thing, and you mentioned it, was that Vader says, I'm ten times the Jedi you were. I mean, that too is like, was that purposely slipped in there to be like one of those references that deep down Vader, while he's still struggling with the Anakin concept, you know, he keeps saying, you know, don't, don't say that name. You know, there, there's that whole angle of denial going on with Vader as well. I mean, even he's willing to say out loud that he is a Jedi after, like you said, anyone else calls him a Jedi and he'll kill him. So, I mean, there, there's definitely some angles at play here that are, are kind of conflicting with, I don't know, the, the norm of what we think we know. So Nanda is on the bridge. She's sort of witnessing this to an extent. Uh, it says, you know, energy discharges in the captain's quarters. The third time in the last 12 hours. That weird Jedi weapon. Just as long as he doesn't hold the hull. And she gets the transmission that tells her what she needs to know about Beerusia. Vader emerges into the cockpit, wanting to review intelligence reports. And she points out, well, there was this report recently, thanks to From the Ruins of Alderaan, the previous arc, of this, basically the venator Cal Star Destroyer audacity, we recall, where Tag Rogarin, who apparently helped yet another person who helped design part of the Death Star, in that case the Super Laser, was there, and he sort of randomly accidentally ran into Leia when Leia showed up at the Ruins of Alderaan in her X-Wing, and they met, and all that sort of thing. Um, they've been able to basically pin down Alderaan as the location where some rebel ran into this guy and has some vague details about what's going on. Just very much like on in The Empire Strikes Back, where we see the power generator on Hoth and Vader's like, the rebels are there, you know, that's it. Well, here, it's sort of, Vader says, ah, that's it, Alderaan, best possible speed. He doesn't give a reason, but he immediately says to set course for Alderaan. It's like the Force is telling him that's where the answers he seeks can be found, or where he could start to find some answers that he seeks. It won't turn out to be quite what he's looking for but at least some answers that tie back into the previous arc. Do you think that that might be both in Empire Strikes Back and here a family connection, though? Maybe it's Leia that's yeah, setting off. Potentially. I'm assuming that, that it's the fact that Leia was there that is drawing him there. But they head off to Alderaan as the first part of this two-parter draws to a close. Yeah, I, I like I like the way that they did that last little bit of the ship, how it's kind of prefaced with the ship from the outside at the beginning and the ending of the scene, that kind of stuff. Uh, it definitely does make me kind of stop and, and question more about the family connections, though, that are playing. Maybe that's the reason why Obi-Wan throws it out there. I mean, granted, it does scream screw up across the board for your overall plan with Luke, but maybe there's something there to illustrate to the reader about the family connections between Vader and his children. So we start issue number 14, which is part two, and we're in the midst of basically a vision. We think it's a flashback, and it turns out it's more like a, a vision or just a, an altered memory. Vader sort of thinking through things. That's how I saw it. I thought Vader was going back into his own mind and using the Force to kind of freeze frame everything. Well, we're back on the Death Star. So it turns out that this vision or whatever it is, this vision slash memory, 
is fulfilling the role that Vader's quest did, right? Because there was the Marvel series that gave us, how does Vader find out the name Skywalker? And then it's Vader's quest where they figure out the name Luke. Or was the other way around, I forget. But it's those two together. One gives the last name, the other gives the first name. That's how they managed to say that it all fits together right around the same time as this story. Now we're getting a completely alternate version of how he learns the name. Because we have the Skywalker angle back in previous issues and information Beerusia finds out about the Skywalker from Tatooine and all of this. And here in the vision, we have Ben, right? It's basically it's the lightsaber duel from A New Hope, except with different dialogue because it's all looking back on it after the fact. And Vader saying, you know, you died for that boy. Who is he? He's the pilot from the trenches, is he not? And rather than cutting Ben down at that moment, Vader, in this case, turns and starts walking towards Luke. Luke says, Ben! And we hear probably Leia, because it's the line that Leia says in A New Hope, which is, Luke, come on! Bum, bum, bum. Not only has Ben screwed up, right? There is no Anakin Skywalker, but you have spoken of another, right? Last issue. And now, thanks to Leia in this memory slash vision, I have a name. Luke. Luke Skywalker. So Vader is learning Luke's name, or at least confirming it, in a completely different way here. I'd like to think it's just confirming it so it could still fit with those other stories, but it certainly seems as though this is supposed to be yet another version of how did Vader figure out who Luke was uh, in the Legends continuity. He does wind up cutting down Obi-Wan there as expected, but this is this idea that sort of the, the, the taunting is building, but now he's learning things from these visions that, but it's like he's questioning himself to a degree. Like, you would assume maybe Obi-Wan is questioning him, or if this is a memory or him thinking things through, it's him questioning himself to a degree. But it seems like the only purpose Obi-Wan in this two-issue arc serves, aside from taunting him, which I thought was kind of interesting, and which I think is kind of cool heading forward if Obi-Wan is in contact with him, his only real purpose, plot-wise, though, is to reveal Luke's identity. Basically, and say, hey, there's a Skywalker. By the way, his name's Luke. Obi-Wan's a moron. Obi-Wan's spirit lacks a brain. Maybe that's the problem. He's disembodied. He has no physical brain anymore, so he's <laughs> doing stupid crap like this. He's dropping the ball, that's for sure. I mean, I, I think somewhere Yoda's wanting to reach through the Force and strangle Obi-Wan. Doing the hell what? You? Or something like that. Yeah. Well, what was interesting, too, is is when he comes out of the vision, I don't know if you got the same vibe, but I had the vibe that he was standing in the doorway the whole time. Yeah, it's like he was just basically standing there on the ship thinking about this, and it's all kind of going through his mind at the time. So they arrive at the ruins of Alderaan, the graveyard of Alderaan, and they hunt down the Audacity. They hunt down Tag Rugaran's ship. And the problem is that the military net or the mill net has a capture or kill, or excuse me, kill or capture order for Tag Rogarin, whose last location was right here on the, the Audacity. What that basically means is that anyone can go after him and get reward for it, which includes off-duty stormtroopers and whatnot, uh, even active-duty troopers. So there's this question of, uh-oh, are the stormtroopers, these elite stormtroopers with the little black dots on them, are they going to tend to be loyal to Vader? Or are they going to go after this guy for the reward because that's just sort of the way things are done? And sure enough, they go aboard, 
uh, that is the Audacity, not the Resolute. Remember, they screwed up the name back in the previous arc. It is called the Audacity. They capture him, bring him aboard with a hood over his head, and when Vader wants to have private words with him, probably torture and kill him, the Stormtroopers turn on him. An order off the Imperial Millnet supersedes this off-the-books action, my lord. I apologize. But an order is an order. This is a high-value target. He's coming with us back to Imperial Center. And Vader just is like, in what ship, Sergeant? And starts tearing them up. Uh, because they turned on him, right? You know, we both served the Emperor. Correction, you are compensated by the Empire for your service. I serve the Emperor. And a, a battle ensues in which basically Vader viciously tears up and kills his own troopers. Uh, it helps at first that Nanda gives him a brief advantage by zipping the ship forward, and in, in moving the ship forward very quickly uh, puts the troopers off balance. Though you could argue whether they should have that sort of effect by trying to do that in space. But I found the, the battle itself pretty cool. Uh, he's using the force to crack helmets and move them off of heads. At one point it looks like he grabs a head and cracks it with his hands, and when he pulls it apart, like, Part of the helmet falls away, and you don't see the head underneath, so you're wondering if part of the head is gone with it. Uh, there manages to be some blaster fire that causes a hole in the hull. Uh, he seals it himself, uh, using the force and whatnot, uh, tossing Rogarin to safety so that he can still be questioned. I found it kind of interesting that here we have another instance of Imperials turning on Vader, but it's not necessarily about them having ambition to somehow surpass him, so much as it's basically about financial rewards and promotions. It's, you know, we want to do this. Vader is standing in the way. We don't recognize Vader's authority over us beyond these orders. So screw Vader. We're going to do what we're going to do. And these guys must have had the confidence to think that somehow they were skilled enough to be able to survive trying this. Yeah, that's the that's the silliest part there. I, I, I do question from the Empire standpoint why you would have your active duty troopers be able to do this i mean this is a perfect example here you've got vader on a mission with his troopers and suddenly the troopers are turning on him i mean that seems like having that as a rule would create that situation more often than not uh you know you mentioned the scene where vader reached behind himself he he reaches behind his head because the troopers kind of up behind him uh the troopers got his arm around his throat at first and he reaches behind and he grabs each side and i thought the same thing at first that he pulled away but, but what he was really doing is he's pushing He's using his robotic arms and he smashes the guy's skull. And so the next scene, you see that he's cracked the helmet in two and smashed it in on the guy's head. Oh, I thought I thought that was just so brutal in such a brilliant way. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, it, it makes you stop and think, what were they thinking to think that they could ever go up against Vader? These guys were an elite special forces group. They should have some idea of what Vader's capable of. I mean, granted, that probably also gives them a, an inflated ego on their own. And maybe that's all it took was just that little inflated ego and the incentive for some easy cash. I mean, one of the things they talk about, even uh, it, it's not herself. She talks about how, you know, Imperial lore is full of failed assassination attempts against Darth Vader. Some obviously bluster, but some are true enough. And I'd put these troopers chances at 30 percent. Of course. After Vader crushes a stormtrooper's helmet and all that stuff, eh, revise that down to maybe 5 percent. Of course, that's when she's realizing that the hole's about to get blasted open. That seems to be, I guess, a pilot's, uh, uh, one of their main concerns, you know. What's the whole integrity of my ship like? Because she seems to kind of focus on it a lot. You know, it's funny. When you first started speaking there, you said, Vader's troopers. 
And you said it very fast. And I thought for a second you said Vader's strippers. And I'm thinking <laughs> that would have been a completely different story, wouldn't it? <laughs> oh, so, oh, yeah, I could just see it now. Like the strippers like all kind of line up and just start taking off. <laughs> like, what are they doing? That Star Wars burlesque thing, I guess. Um, so he does decide to start interrogating Rogarin. Once he gets rid of the stormtroopers, like he was going to in the first place, Rogarin isn't willing to give Leia up at all and winds up paying for it with his life. His neck gets snapped by Vader, very similar to Captain Antilles, because it's not a force choke. It's literally him lifting him up with his hand and snapping his neck. But he apparently already has a good idea of who it was because he says, as loyal as they come, but in the end your actions betrayed you, Rogarin. Senator Leia Organa will be so disappointed when she finds out. Nothing he said really seems to have pointed to Leia, except just the fact that he was trying to be loyal as someone from Alderaan. But, okay, whatever. See, I thought that he read that out of the guy's mind through the Force. So the guy was like, I won't turn on Leia Organa. And that's where Vader got the name from. But I definitely got the feeling that the Force was pushing Vader not just in Luke's camp, but also on Leia's trail as well. I would hope that's what they're trying to do here, but he says your actions betrayed you, not your thoughts. Your actions. So, yeah, it just, I don't know. It, it seemed like Vader was kind of jumping to a conclusion there, unless we want to give the Force credit for the deduction. They wind up at their final destination, which is Chandrilla. And they start hunting, again, for more answers about Bircher, which, again, was the initial point right? says, this is Vader's only lead on the rebel spy, Bircher. A slight Chandrillan accent under the Imperial basic. For real? You're going off the fact that the guy didn't speak exactly properly? This is Vader's only lead on the rebel spy, Bircher. A slight Chandrillan accent under the Imperial basic. A motivated slicer back on Imperial Center, and we have a location deep in the Chandrillan prairies. That's right. They're going off of the fact that Bircher had an accent. Really? Yeah. That's you're, stretching it a little. You're hunting down spies, and instead of questioning them, you're simply eliminating them. Or not spies, slicers slash spies. You're not questioning them, you're eliminating them. So that the only lead you really have to go on that's left, because you didn't question them, is his accent. Wow. Okay, whatever. They wind up finding this childhood home of Birchers. And it still, in and of itself, doesn't provide answers. Uh, Nanda goes down, because it's just her invader now, left on the ship on the Archer. She goes down, she walks through the home, finds it pretty much abandoned. No real clues inside the home until she comes around the back. And there's a family burial plot with three headstones for the individuals Far, Archer, and Finna, Mothma. And she realizes, aha, right? The family who lived here is named Mothma. One of the leaders of the Rebel Alliance is named Mon Mothma. Still, Bertram may not be related. Your slicer could have made a mistake. It was like, no, there was no mistake. Uh, this is Vader's confirmation that there is a family relationship between Bircher and Mon Mothma, which, of course, is the truth, right? It's a nephew. And that means that, okay. Right? He's got the answer he wanted. It was a family connection. That's why he became a spy. That's what his connection was to the Alliance. Now, as an example, he's going to destroy that home and wipe out the Bircher estate, so to speak. But Nanda is still kind of in the way. 
She gets a little bit far from the prairie. She says, I had this terrible idea he was going to leave me here. I might have preferred that to this. And he brings in the archer, this Corellian Corvette, and just blasts the home and just keeps blasting until he has drained its batteries dry. And she was right there the entire time. She gets hit by the concussion of this explosion to the point where she's going to have to spend three months under medical supervision. So you got to, I guess there's two different ways to look at this story. It is either the story of Vader hunting down the truth of Bircher, or it's the story of Insananda and how her perceptions of Vader change as she develops as a character. For a character arc, hers is still not over. We still have a few more pages, but it's been the through line and it makes for a decent story here. But if this really is supposed to be the hunt for the truth about Bircher, it's handled in a very flimsy way. We don't see any of the interrogation or any of the hunting down of the spies slash slicers. They're just kind of there and gone. Uh, we don't see anything here uh, beyond just, oh, hey, here's a home. Let's take a look. That's it. We don't see any of the conversation about, hey, he has an accent. Hey, let's slice this. It seems as though the Bircher hunt is the MacGuffin of the story. It's mm -hmm. just kind of there to give an excuse for her and Vader to be off on this mission so we can see this perspective on Vader. Because the Bircher Hunt story is extremely thin in these two issues. Well, and yeah, you definitely had the feeling like it was the setting of the story for Nada's character. I mean, that's the weirdest part of all, that they rushed so many things. When Rogarin was grabbed, for example, it was like suddenly they're outside the ship, and next thing you know, they're dragging him in. I, there's a lot of stuff where they jumped forward, and maybe that jumping forward is what really hurts the redemption side of things. But at the same time, it really does illustrate the fear angle from Nada herself. I mean, as it goes forward, you've watched her progression kind of like you did with uh, Sia herself. You know, to start to look at Vader in a totally different light and to start to fear the Dark Lord. Which brings us to, you mentioned fearing the Dark Lord. Why, frankly, I wonder if Vader ever really should have feared Palpatine. And this is not something just in this series. I mentioned it earlier. It's something all across this era of the Legends continuity. Vader can fail the Emperor over and over and over again. And he's always left okay. The Emperor is not as forgiving as I am. Well, then you must be really forgiving, Vader, at least to your underlings, because the Emperor certainly is. Vader shows up back on Coruscant after basically, remember, hanging up on the Emperor and going off on his own. Goes in, bows to the Emperor in the throne room. My lord, you've been busy, Vader, yet you still managed to return to me like the pup you are. Gotta wonder if he was somehow listening in on the conversation on the Devastator because he uses pup the same way the guy on the Devastator did. So tell me, did you get your satisfaction? The Bircher deception has been isolated and his true identity discovered. The rebel leader Mon Mothma, he is her kin. I seek reinstatement as your humble servant and to resume my duties hunting the rebel fleet. Granted, but with a word of warning. By all means, seek the rebel fleet. But if you have any further personal ambitions, Vader, proceed carefully, for I cannot guarantee I will be as forgiving next time. But you say that every time. Would have been <laughs> nice to see Vader show up and get, like, force lightning blasted or something, and then allowed into the Emperor's service again, as opposed to just being, all right, you went off and did your own thing, you're okay, because that really, 
I, it doesn't seem the way a Sith would work. There are a few instances mm. where Vader gets actually punished for screwing up in the Legends continuity, but they are few and far between compared to the ones in which he is forgiven and reminded that he may not get forgiven again. Would have liked for this that seems like it's going to take a different tack on the last couple of pages for how Nanda's story ends compared to the way that many would probably have expected it to end. Would have been nice if they had also done something a little bit different with how Vader is treated here. Well, I mean, imagine if they would have upped the the threat level of Palpatine, where as Palpatine's like, you know, uh, maybe not so forgiving next time, and then reaches out and force crutches Vader's arms off at the shoulders, you know, <laughs> like, you know, significantly damages Vader, where Vader has to get some prosthetic upgrades because Palpatine's so done with his stuff. Like, I think that would have just really amped the evil. And plus it would have kind of helped to put Vader under the, the shoehorn more to know that Palpatine was willing to, you know, brutally maim Vader and leave Vader crippled more <laughs> for a little while while he gets rebuilt. Like, I, I think that that would have served to keep Vader's humbleness to the Lord more making sense. You already have robotic limbs. I can cut them off and replace them anytime without changing your midichlorian count again. So don't piss me off, Lord Vader. Yeah, you, I'm hoping actually that's something we might see in the new story group driven canon, that the Emperor isn't as forgiving anymore. The Emperor does take out his frustrations on Vader and punish him physically or mentally or whatever for what he has done when he has failed, because that also would help build up a resentment within mm -hmm. him to help push towards the no, no, and the you know, killing of Palpatine to save Luke. General Grievous himself was experimented on more than just one time. I mean, they kind of furthered his cybernetic transformation along as he evolved as a character. And I think about Vader in that regard, like how cool would it be that the Vader that we see, you know, at episode three's end is not internally the same Vader we see come A New Hope, who isn't even the same Vader come Return of the Jedi, that Palpatine is constantly, you know, damaging vader more and having him rebuilt and refashioned and retooled over and over again constantly reminded kind of like what what palpatine did with uh what was it lemel beskalisk or whatever his name was the, the one of the original designers of the death star how he would have the guy cloned and kill him over and over again like something like that would just really raise the level of evilness between the sith master and the sith apprentice and vader's unique situation being cyborg like he is that brings us to the last couple pages and I will say I really like the juxtaposition they do here between what she says, that is Nanda, and what we're seeing happening. Because what she says, as this ends in the narration, is, I never saw Lord Vader again. I should be relieved to have survived. Few could say the same. Word trickled down through the grapevine that Biracia was found murdered on some outer rim backwater. Yes, that's right. That's how they wrap up Biracia's storyline. It is never heard from again. That in and of itself is kind of asinine, but I digress. True to Vader's word, my promotion came through. A huge sum was deposited into my accounts, and I was reassigned new quarters, better quarters. Follow orders without question, and avoid culpability later. Not so bad for five days' work. Except as she's saying this, we see her in a refresher, which apparently has a whole lot, because you can see a reflection, has a whole lot of mirror and sinks and what apparently are lockers i don't see any actual restroom stalls in there so i guess if you really got to go you got to go in one of the sinks but 
she's washing her hands, splashing water on her face. She looks up in the mirror and imagines Vader standing behind her. Very quickly turns around, and there's no one there. She's sort of leaning back on the sink. Until finally she, in theory, she like sort of drops down onto the ground. So she's sitting there with her knees pulled up kind of close to her chest. This furtive look off to the side, like she's expecting something to come at her. And just kind of freaked out. The idea that she got what she wanted in terms of the promotion. Oh, she was rewarded. But that's just the outward trappings of all of this. That inwardly, in terms of her psychological development, she is now a broken individual or at least someone who lives with paranoia and fear and the echoes of all these things that she witnessed. They could very easily have made that something where instead of a psychological thing, it was a rebellious act and she left to join the rebellion or that she just got killed or maybe she killed herself that they probably didn't want to go that dark with this. But to have her be psychologically scarred with this, and since she is the main character in this, to have the through line of this story basically be the breaking of a person by the events that they witness, that I think was kind of a bold choice. It's why I like this story. It has its flaws, the thing with Obi-Wan, the thing about the way they dispose of the Beerusia thing. Yeah, it's got its flaws. But I really like this story, and again, think that it's the best one out of this particular series because of the bold steps that it takes with this character in so many ways. Would I like to see the character again? I don't know. I would fear that if we did see her again, she would have gone off in one of those more stereotypical directions. To have it end here and this be the damaged final version of the character that we ever see, I think it works very well. I've always loved the psychological angles of Star Wars. When we eventually, hopefully, do some film commentaries, when you get a chance to get the Blu-rays and such, um, one of the things I'm sure we'll talk about is the psychological aspects of Anakin and such throughout the prequel trilogy. Psychology just is what drives me towards a character because I want them to be more than just the surface. I want there to be more going on and for the writers to seem to have acknowledged that there would be more going on to those characters. And in this case, Brian Wood knocks that aspect of this story out of the park. Yeah, I got to agree with you there with the character assessment. I I think, you know, one of the cool things that they were going to bring this character back, it would have been cool to see her kind of like lean towards the rebellion and question her fear over Vader as to how much she's willing to actually, you know, be a rebel. I, I like the aspect that, you know, when Vader blew up the, the place, it kind of made her realize that she's just as dispensable. You know, I mean, she's collateral damage. There's no reason why to keep her around. And yet the fact that Vader kept true to his word and gave her the, the promotion, he gave her the new quarters, he gave her the raise. It leaves her knowing that while she didn't die then and there, Vader still remembers her. So that leaves that fear that Vader you know, she's not off Vader's radar. I mean, he remembered enough to come through on that promise, which leaves her wondering, you know, is he going to come through on the promise of keeping her quiet down the road? Because she knows clearly that he got her an ensign on that mission because she wouldn't speak. And I mean, I, I love that, that angle right here of, of she's just afraid he's going to come and silence her and wipe out what she knows. Uh, you know, there's that angle of Vader, the the legendary aspect of him as a villain within the empire and the fact that, that you know they can look at him as a hero and a villain at the same time uh, I, I like the way that that angle is played up here really well it, it was it was definitely a fun ride and you know you'd mentioned you know was it more the the quest of finding out about Bircher or was it more her story and I definitely think it was her story set with the Bircher as the background 
Now, to challenge something that you said there, you said that you would have liked to have seen maybe at the end her sort of questioning things and leaning towards the rebellion. I would actually say that to me that would have felt more stereotypical to what we see with so many other Star Wars stories. I think it's a bolder choice to have this character be someone who is still loyal to the Empire, even after all of this. Yeah. Still a loyal Imperial officer, but her view on Vader has changed. And the fear and sort of the acknowledgement of the Empire's methods when personified by Vader being what has caused her to be so broken. Because remember, early on, it seemed as though she was totally okay with the idea of this unproportional response and, you know, things like the Death Star. But when it comes to the personal brutality, seeing it firsthand with Vader, that instills the fear. And yet she's still a loyal Imperial. It reminds me in a lot of ways of, uh, for those out there, if you've read Servants of the Empire, Edge of the Galaxy, the story of Zara Leonis from Star Wars Rebels in the new canon, as it leads up to when we see him in Breaking Ranks. His parents are loyal Imperials, and they seem like good people for the most part, but they are constantly making excuses for the things that people are doing in the name of the Empire and talking about how these brutal things and these horrible things and these unjust things that are happening, they're the exception. There are these brutal people in the Empire who shouldn't be there in the first place. They're doing people wrong. That's not what the government should represent. All those types of arguments are being made... And you realize that you, in, in a galaxy this big, you could certainly have people who are loyal to the Empire and believe in what it does, who really did think of those types of atrocities, especially if a lot of them are being hushed up, as the exception rather than the rule. So somehow the Empire is still the good in the universe, and rebels would still be the enemy. I, I like that aspect of it, and I think that plays well with Nanda's character here. I'm really, really glad they didn't do any kind of rebel angle with her. That, To me, that would have been... It would have been taking a story that in and of itself had some bold aspects to it and driving it off into the, the weeds of the mundane again. Yeah. No, I agree with that. No, what I'm saying is, is if they were to bring the character back in another story, that would be the direction I want to see her go down that road. Like, you know, say if she was to come back, it was a story set like a year or two years after this event and the fear that she's constantly been living in has slowly drove her to that. I mean, that would be if I saw this character come back, that would be the kind of story I'd like to see them go from here. I, I agree with you, though. I think it was a, it was a great way to end it for the character and where it places her in the Empire as well as her mental state. Uh, but yeah, if I think where I would like to see the character go down the road, if I would want to see her at all, I, I think I'm with you where, where they could just leave it as is and, and I'd be completely content. If they were to ever come back to that character, I think I would like to see something that has put enough gap that it would make more sense that her fear has drove her to that point where she's willing to, to walk away from the Empire at that point. But otherwise, yeah, I 100% agree with you. I, don't, I think if they were to put something like that, any rebel leanings at the end of this story, I think it would have tainted her story all the way around. It would have definitely made it less impactful. I mean, you know, there wasn't a lot going on to this, but but I'm, I'm with you on a lot of regards. Of, this was one of the better stories of the whole Star Wars volume, too. I guess another question this raises is, I again, I found it very cool that he decided to go with a female lead character who was also black. Right, he's actually adding a little bit of diversity to the characters. It makes me wonder, though, looking back on it, if part of him choosing at least a female character was to make the ending more believable. And what does that say about the perceptions of society? That 
one could make the argument, oh, well, it'd be more believable if a woman broke down after seeing all of this than a man seeing all of this. Um, do you think the choice was almost a sexist one in some degree, that if a character was going to have that type of reaction to Vader and the fear and whatnot, that, well, it should be a woman instead of a man? Or is it just, he happened to choose a woman, and that's how it played out? I'm not saying that he necessarily made a sexist decision up front, but you can make the argument that if that was what he felt was a natural decision, then there's sort of an inborn societal sexism perhaps underlying that type of decision. Just like if you had a character who was going to be parental in nature, choosing a woman instead of a man. Well, I guess you got to question that in two angles. I mean, one is look at it from Brian Wood. Uh, and I I think... Oh, God, I didn't even think of the uh, Brian yeah. Wood's supposed track record out there. Well, you got well, you got that. But, but I was also going to say, though, the Vader angle, I think that with Vader, I think Vader is attracted to or... Well, maybe it is just attracted. Maybe he's just attracted to strong women or that the women in his life have given him appreciation for women. I don't know. I mean, he's always seemed to have strong women in his life. So I, I don't know. I've never seen him being so sexist in that regard. Like I don't see Vader seeing a woman being weak. Uh, but Brian Wood writing the character, I, I, you know, I wouldn't have thought about it until you pointed out, but maybe that was why he picked it was for that end scene. Although I would disagree that I don't think you have to have a lady to have a breakdown of a character like that at the end. I think any character could have done that. Uh, you know, going back to the ghost prison, I could have saw that character do the similar, you know, similar breakdown of events to a degree. So, I mean, there's definitely some angles to think about there that I wouldn't have thought about naturally. So overall, I think we're both in agreement. This is a pretty good one uh, for this series, sort of a high point of the series. But I would say it's definitely not one that we need to read. It's essentially a throwaway story. But a good throwaway story. One of the few of this series that I could recommend without reservation. Yeah, throwaway story. And I think the reason why it being a throwaway story and being a good thing in this case is because it's from a throwaway series. Uh, the series itself was a complete throwaway where you could enjoy it or you could toss it off the side and it wasn't going to affect very much. Uh, it came so late in the game that it being the quote unquote air quotes here official canon or official continuity, as it were, of Legends and it rewriting things, I think a lot of people are just like, eh, and they just forget all about it and ignore it purposely. So, uh, yeah, I think throwaway is definitely the thing to come with. But it's it was definitely one of the better of what you're going to get when it comes in terms of throwaway stories. That brings us into covers. We've just got two, really. I mean, technically it's three, but one of them, the trade paperback, is actually just a repeat of uh, cover 13. Cover 13 itself is, is interesting because it's got a picture of Luke in his Stormtrooper armor, and it's like a hologram, and Vader's kind of sitting over it, kind of all... I don't know, methodical, like he's going to crush him or something or pull him apart. I'm not exactly sure what the driving moment there for Vader is. But what I like is like in the eyes of Vader's helmet, you see a reflection of the hologram as well. And it says in the Dark Lord's thoughts. Uh, I like that one. I think I think it's my favorite of the two. Uh, 14 is just a picture of Vader and you got a bunch of TIE fighters coming in and you've got just in the top. I would say top left corner of Vader's helmet is a slight reflection of Ben Kenobi. And it says a shadow on the empire. And I don't know of the two, like I just didn't really care for the big front of Vader's helmet on number 14, 13 definitely had more going for it in my own mind. What about you, Nate? 
13 is definitely the better of the two, but again, valedictorian of summer school. This is... These are two of the most utterly generic Star Wars covers that I'd seen in a very long time. 13 with the In the Dark Lord's Thoughts, Vader looking over Luke. That makes sense as the cover of the A Shattered Hope trade paperback. To an extent? But not to any giant degree, because even that story is not really about looking for Luke. If Vader was looking at Bircher here or something, that would make a lot more sense. This is the issue where he really doesn't mess too much with the Luke angle. That comes more in number 14 during that sort of vision slash, you know, whatever you want to call it at the beginning. So kind of weird. I mean, it fits with this series because we did see Luke with Stormtrooper armor taking his helmet off and that sort of thing, but by and large, felt very generic, like it really didn't fit the story that was inside the issue. 14, if you can believe it, even more generic. Vader's helmet with a reflection of Obi-Wan and some TIE fighters. A shadow on the Empire. Whose shadow? What shadow? What are you exactly are you trying to say there? I, I don't know. You could not look at either of these two covers and have the slightest idea what was going to be inside the issues. It's one of those things we've talked about before when it comes to covers. I personally want to see something at least reflecting what's inside, even if it's not exactly the same type of scene as what's inside. Yeah. Unless it's going to be something that is very poster-esque and just captures the feel of it. Neither of these covers, to me, does either of those things. They are ungodly generic, as if they just commissioned them for this series and just randomly picked which issues they were going to stick them on. Not bad covers, per se, but generic. Well, at the end of the Republic uh, line that became Clone Wars, eventually became Dark Times and all that, there was one, I think it was uh, Loyalty and Dishonor or something like that with Vader, and it was a political theme. But it had a cover similar to that with Vader kind of looking over like Coruscant. And I don't know. This one kind of reminded me of that a lot in a lot of ways. But I think, you know, when you're dealing with two stories like this, it's easier to, uh, I don't know, not care as much what the art is i i definitely agree with you i like it when my art reflects stuff that's coming on when it has nothing to do with it i find that more distracting it's like just you know save the really cool art for cool posters man and it begs the question for me if you're bold enough to make the main character of the story a black woman on the inside of the issues why not be bold enough to make the black woman main character a centerpiece of your covers when it's sitting there to be seen by prospective buyers on the comic book shelves. Maybe that was not a decision that they actually made. Maybe it was just, here's a bunch of random covers, we're just going to stick them on these issues because we've only got up to issue 20 to use these covers we've already paid for. But it's interesting that when they're giving us covers that have no relation to what's inside, really, that those are the issues with that bold choice of a main character in terms of ethnicity and in terms of gender. So, you know, take it for what you will. Do I, again, a, a lot of this, I don't necessarily think there were sexist decisions being made or racist in that case, I guess. I don't think there were decisions being made that way on purpose, but I wonder if there's just sort of that general environment of still a lot of sexist leanings in American culture that would have led to them feeling like the automatic decision is to do something like this as opposed to highlighting that character. Granted, she's not a character that would have been a recognizable character to anyone who hadn't read this story. But, I don't know, it's 
it's it's something to put out there as you know a, a place to start pondering aspects of the publishing lines. Well, no, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, even Star Crash, uh, the single issue, I think it was like 29 in that Republic line I was just mentioning, it had pictures of the characters that were unique to that single story in it. I mean, you know, you, you bring up a very good point. That was kind of really dropped the ball on the cover aspects to not have her included. I get it in the trade paperback at least, but on the singles, really? Yeah, fail. Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. Help us defeat the trolls. If you find any enjoyment from our show, go and leave us an iTunes review. Let other fans know that these trolls are full of hot air. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. It's our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or EU slash Legends questions, or if you want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention to you our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starsreport, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars expanded universe or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate because Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making that switch from the page to the audiobook like I have, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Sing. Thanks for listening, and may the Force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that I'm going to get flack for bringing up the sexism angle as a potential point of pondering. Or what are the odds that Obi-Wan's just going to tell Vader he's got a daughter, too? And here's where you can find them, Vader. <laughs> oh, and they've been kissing. No! <laughs> Do what must be done, Lord Vader. I'm assuming you're putting in blank spot to digitally cut out later. And I forgot to press the button.
<laughs> well, at least uh, you got a spot. Well, that will, give, that will give me a chance to look for some noise. Actually, yeah, whatever. We'll get the noise from the end. Um, let me try that again. Yes, five days of Sith. Um... Yeah, the Bria angle was probably one of the things Bira. that I was with. Bira. Bria was Han's Bira. girlfriend that helped steal the Death Star plans. That's Bira. why I'm always getting those two confused. Bira. Most succinct ways I've ever seen. Wow, and somebody just upstairs must have just dropped a body or something because that was a big. <laughs> that uh, was upstairs? Yeah, it was upstairs. If the rumors were true, it was hard for me to imagine someone more deserving of Vader's anger than Bria. Tasked with Vader to ferret you out keep the rebels. saying Bria! I <laughs> do. Damn it. Curse you, Fibromyalgia! I swear, I thought I was saying Bura, Bira, Bira. Han and this woman never had a thing. I oh. hope. <laughs> Cougars. Oh, God. Yeah, uh, let's see, where was it? A motivated slicer back on Imperial Center, and we have... Wait. I mean, that's actually part of the sentence. It just, he's got a period instead of a comma, but it's not meant to be a period. 